wow, what a what an introduction. I just usually say, here's Larry. Uh, <laughs> so that was, that, was, that was very encouraging. That picture beside, you know, in the dictionary of Rob, you won't really know it's Rob unless you know Rob because it's kind of the picture of the backside running away in running shorts. So you know it's him from that, but uh, you don't see his face. It's just sort of there. Uh, we have loved this church from the beginning and have been blessed to, to watch it. And I remember when you were over the, in the little chapel over there, and one of the remarkable things over there, and Larry probably seldom mentions this because he might not even remember it, but in the pulpit area, I was speaking there one time, and, and I realized there were vestiges of the funeral homes still around. If it was a, a female person or if it was a male person, the female person had a red bulb on that end of the casket. And if it was a male, they had a blue. So, so you know, Larry had to preach with blue and red lights coming on and reminding him of our mortality. And so that was it. So anyway, what a joy to be able to come. And, and on this mission's time, Recall the goodness of God in calling us to himself. Someone cared enough about you to tell you about Christ. Now, here's the thing. This morning, <clears throat> there's nothing that I'm going to tell you that's new. There's nothing really like, oh, I never thought of that before. You've been in this church long enough to have thought of all of these things many times over. And so, as is the task of many kind of preacher responsibilities, we get to just remind you of things you already know. So if you're thinking, well, that wasn't all that great, good, but Jesus is, and that's what we're here to talk about. And so the song we sang earlier reminds us of the text in Isaiah 60. If you will turn there just briefly, this is not an exposition this morning. This is purely a topical message, and let's just acknowledge that right up front. Uh, it's not an exposition of Isaiah 60, so if you're looking for that, uh, you are in the wrong place. But he says in verses 1 to 3, Isaiah 60, arise, shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is the promise of God to his people. Let's pray together and ask him to show us how that's supposed to look and how that takes place from generation to generation as the gospel goes forward. Father, we do bow humbly before you because we do understand that if the light does not shine from you through us, there is no light we have to give. There's no message that we can use to convince people of something that they are naturally, from a human perspective, inclined to deny, refute, and live in defiance against. And so, Lord, may the light of the glory of the beauty of Christ shine on your word this morning, and may there be something about the power of the gospel in the calling to proclaim it that, that moves us. Lord, this place is a, is a launch pad for missionaries. We are so grateful that we get to be a part of that ongoing tradition, and that today, we will celebrate not the golden era that has been North Wake, but Father, may we find ourselves on the threshold of the greatest days that are still to come in sending folks out for your glory. And so, Lord, we bow before you now for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, folks, whether we like it or not, some things just can't be rushed. Great things take time. 
And as much as in our modern era, we think we can improve on the plans or do things better than they used to be, uh, there's just some stuff that just can't be pushed forward. And so we, we look at the mass productions of our age, and, and mass production does produce some good stuff, and, and it's cheaper, and it, it lasts for a while, and it accomplishes the purposes. But, but sometimes there's just the old ways are actually better ways. I, Kathy and I were on a mission trip to South Korea years ago, and, and uh, the honorarium for speaking there was they brought a, a, a tailor in, and, and he's just this guy speaks no English, but he comes in with a tape measure, and he's, he's running the tape all around me, and he's writing things down on a legal pad. There's no chart or anything. He's just writing down numbers. And at the end of the trip, they hand me a, a suit. That was over 20 years ago. That's my best suit still. I mean, I still wear that thing. I'm not sure how it works, but, you know, I've gone up and down 15 or 20 pounds over the years since that time, and it still fits. It's magic. I don't know how that works, but it's a glorious thing. But it's handmade. It's, it's my favorite thing. I, I'm also an amateur photographer. I love to take pictures, and I've got the digital camera and all the stuff that goes with that. But the true artists out there, they still use film and mock the rest of us. As wannabe photographers, they, they look at us and think, you know, yeah, you're, you're doing a good job, little boy, but that's not really what's going to count. And so you get the idea. Old things are not always able to be cast aside. And so when we come into church to the idea of missions, we, we sometimes act like we discovered it. We act like, oh, in our generation, we're finally doing something about the Great Commission. And God's speaking to us and saying, this was my idea. This is what I put together. This is how it's supposed to work. There's not anything that's going to make it better by you innovating in missions. Now, methodology, yes, but the basic principles cannot be improved upon. And so if we're not careful, we in the church can find ourselves willing to settle for some shortcuts to get the mass production of anything going. That doesn't work with missionaries if we want to have an impact on the nations for the glory of Christ. And so what I want us to talk about in our time together today is what happens when we go back and find the foundational, core, firm characteristics that God has outlined in the scriptures that have been replicated all through the centuries whenever there was a missions movement. And when I say a missions movement, I don't mean just one person going out of one church out of 500 uh, to take the, the plunge in the missions. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about a movement of God <clears throat> where he is sending his people to the nations and we're not clinging to our right to stay home. And clinging to our right to hold on to our own money. One of the things that I'm doing now with the ministry that we began called Equip for Life is consulting with churches and pastors. And one of the churches I met with, I looked at their information they gave me and I said, I, I just have a a pretty pressing question. I looked at your budget. There's not one penny in there for missions. How do you do that? M m m missions? What? They had, they had not even thought in terms of the Great Commission having any kind of impact on their ministry as a church. Because somehow or another they thought, well, we just mass produce what we do and our concern is just here. And God's saying, no, lift up your eyes. I want to show you how to be enthusiastically and strategically all in with what I've put before you, so that there is indeed a movement, a missions movement that is spurred on by God. So several years ago, I started doing some research on this issue of what are the characteristics that missions movements have in common, and, and beginning with Antioch and coming up to this day 
in October at North Wake. What are those common denominators? And identified nine different common denominators, and you will be pleased to know I'm not going to cover all of them this morning. Eight of them is all I'm going to be able to. No, it's not. Yeah, the one that said David must go. That one's, I'm not touching that one. No, we're going to have a chance to cover maybe three or four, depending on how the time goes and how well I'm a manager of this time. So we'll see how it goes. But here's the thing. Modern churches, modern followers of Christ, tend to think that we can improve just about everything. But we're called to do our ministries with the understanding that there are no shortcuts in what God intends to do to reach the nations with Christ. So let's begin by, by talking about these characteristics. One uh, that we're going to look at first is power from on high, from the Holy Spirit. Two, a passion for Christ. Three, prevailing prayer. Four, uh, a deep soaking in the scriptures and a belief and love for the, the word of truth. And on down the list of uh, faith in Christ and holiness and purity of life, eyes willing to see what God sees and all those kind of things. The supportive congregation, persecution, opposition, all those things are part of every missions movement. So we want to start with this first thing that a missions movement begins with power from on high. Anybody shocked? No? Why? Because we understand that missions begins with a humbling revelation. There's no way you can do this on your own. You can't do it. You can organize for it. You can lay it out with charts and plans and org charts and, and scoping it out with pins and maps and do all that kind of stuff you want to, but you cannot scope out a way to do the missions work of Christ and the great commission to make disciples of all nations. You cannot do that in your own capacity. It's impossible to do that. We can't improve on that. So when Jesus is getting ready to ascend to the right hand of the Father, he's meeting with his disciples. He gives them that great commission to go and make disciples of the nations, and he tells them that's what they're supposed to do. But then in Luke 24, he's got his guys together there, and he says, now, let me make sure we're clear on this. I don't mean go do it now. Remember? He says, no, instead of launching out and doing this, I, I know a couple of possibilities of how you're going to respond to my departure from you. One is you're going to say, well, what's the use? Let's go back to what we were doing before you came. That was a fun three-year ride, but I don't see any reason to go on. Let's go back to fishing. Let's go back to tax collecting. Let's go back to what we were doing. So he said, that's one possibility that can happen, and I want to speak to you about not doing that. Second is, probably even worse, is that you're going to take the words that I've said, even the commission, and you're going to think you can just go out and do it and do it on your own. No. Luke 24, he says, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. It's like those commercials you see, you know, if somebody driving a car and says, do not do this at home. This is done by professionals on a closed track. You know, Jesus is saying, guys, don't try this on your own. You will get slammed to the deck immediately without the power of the Spirit. So don't go anywhere yet. So as these truths are there for us, we, we understand that, that we've got to live by the Spirit by keeping in step with the Spirit. Galatians, uh, Galatians tells us that, that we are to do just that. Keep in step with the Spirit. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. You've got to be born of the Spirit to have new life. And so when we're born of the Spirit, what happens is that we are indwelt by the Spirit. And in John 14, Jesus says, He will come and He will not only be with you, He will be in you. Paul talks it further and says, You are the temple 
of the Holy Spirit. He, he dwells within you. And then he gives a lot of things that the Holy Spirit does in, in John 16. But he tells us that he's, he's dwelling within us. And he says, and if you're confused about what to do, understand this in, in John 14. He says, the Spirit, when he comes, he will teach you. He will lead you into all truth. He will remind you of all the things that I've said. And churches in our day need to be reminded by the Spirit of our commitment to the Great Commission. But then this great promise that he gives in Luke 24, 49, is repeated over in Acts chapter 1. And he says, but you will receive, what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You understand what I'm saying? He says, the Holy Spirit has come when you were born of the Spirit. You're walking in the Spirit. You're keeping a step of the Spirit. You're supposed to be doing that. He now dwells within you. He will lead you into all the truth and show you what he, he's wanting you to see that I've called you to do. And now you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And in that one verse, Jesus gives the outline of the entire book of Acts as to how the gospel went forward. Always in the power of the Holy Spirit. Somehow or another in the church, we've decided that we, we, can, we can do this without the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Because we are not the kind of people who pray as we ought to pray as if everything depended upon the Lord. We somehow or another think or imagine that we can get this accomplished without having to rely entirely on what God does through us and in us. And we are still trying to sort out what it means to walk by the Spirit in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so a lot of missions movements begin with the reality that, that we have not operated in spiritual power, but in human machinery and organizations and, and structures and, and the, the ways that we have sent gifted people to do the work of the ministry. Lord, we've sent our best people and our best resources to accomplish the best purpose. Did you send them in the power of the Spirit? No, Lord, but they're fully funded, and we are excited that we're sending the best ones out there that we can get our, our hands on. We, we're sending the, the good ones. And, Lord, the organization that they're a part of is phenomenal. It's one of the best organized missions entities in the world. But are they going in the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, well yeah, yeah, of course, Lord. No, not of course, Lord. This is huge. Is there power in your going and doing of missions. Are there evidences that the fruit of the Spirit is being born in the endeavors that are being taken on by our missionary force that's in the world? All through the centuries, the mark of missions movement is not that we got a, a horde of people out there. It's that those who are out there empowered are seeing the power of the Spirit work to take the message that they're proclaiming into the hearts that are impenetrable apart from the Spirit of God. That power from on high carries the truth of His Word straight to the hearts of those who hear in a way that our convincing words and our, our very carefully crafted logical arguments and our apologetics cannot accomplish. We, we need to still do those things but in the power of the Spirit. Paul says, my word didn't come to you in word only, but what? But in power, in the Holy Spirit, in the full conviction.
So, first characteristic. we got to have power from on high. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do the very commission that God's given us. You see how it's going? We're going to have a hard time getting to four this morning. <laughs> Fast forward. Here we go. Second, they had a passion for Christ. Something was driving them to go. Something was compelling them to rise up from wherever they were and get out there and do what God's called them to do through the Great Commission. And so we, we begin to, to watch how this unfolds, and we see that, that there is something that Paul talks about in his letters that we, we can't neglect. We can't ignore this because this is a guy who left everything and went to the ends of the earth as he knew the earth to be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everywhere he went, in every letter he wrote, there's an element of passion for Jesus that you can't miss. And so in one passage in particular, we, we remember chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Go and be ambassadors for Christ, be agents of reconciliation, all that comes with that. <clears throat> We're new creatures in Christ, all that's a part of that. We can't forget chapter 4, where he tells us in chapter 4, there's something that you need to understand. The God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness... This is the same God who made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. It's not from us. My, my passion, Paul is saying, is to gaze upon the beauty of Christ, to see that this glorious, beautiful, radiant Savior has captured my heart. And he has changed my life like nothing else ever has. And more than truths that convinced me, and more than, than just the experience on the road to Damascus that transformed me immediately from darkness to light, I, I count it the greatest honor to be able to say with, with David, one thing I ask of the Lord, that's what I'm going to seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in this temple. That's, that's what I live for, to be able to see that. And you see David's words turn into Paul's words in that great passage in Philippians chapter 3. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I can gain Christ. I just want to see Jesus every day. And I can do that in the prison cell in Rome, or I can do that on the road to Damascus. I can do it in the wilderness of Asia. I can do it wherever because he is there and he is resplendent in his glorious beauty. Folks, we, we tend to want to make Jesus our buddy. And oh, he is indeed a friend of sinners. And oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. And, and we, we understand that. And, we, and those are true. But he is not just that. There's something about an encounter with Christ that absolutely transforms everything. If you have any knowledge of the history of missions, you, you're familiar with the name Hudson Taylor. Some of you may have read the biography of Taylor. And his son put together the life and letters of Taylor and, and wrote all these things up. But one of the things that happens is that, that sending churches and sending entities become savoring churches and savoring entities where they, they are sending because they savor and taste and wonder at the glory and the beauty and the, the extravagant 
magnificence of Jesus. There's something about that. And so Taylor was sensing God was working in his life. He was a student in med school. He's about 21 years old. And one afternoon he is on the hillside and he's just seeking God. For hours he's praying. We're not going to ask for a show of hands as to how many people have done that in the last week. But this is his heart. Lord, I want more of you. Lord, I am offering myself to you. If you can find a place, any place that you can put me into service, Lord, if there's anything that I can be called upon to be trusted to do, Lord, if you would do that, just use your servant. And then he describes a moment when he just sensed the Lord's favor who just said, I got a place for you. And his whole world changed and began the process and began to find out that there was a place for him. It was going to be in China. And so he stopped med school at age 21. Well, he should have stayed in school. Just think how much more of an impact he could have had. Yeah, he started 205 mission agencies and, and preaching points all over China before 1905. I think he did okay without his med degree. Yeah, I think he's okay. But as he's getting ready to leave, he's toying with this whole cost of discipleship here and, and seeing the beauty and the surpassing value of knowing Christ and the glory of, of his face and seeing him as he is. And he writes to his mom. You know, I get a little emotional here, so relax. But he writes a letter to his mom and he's saying, I don't know when they're going to send the message. I don't know when they're going to tell me that it's time to go. But here's, here's the thing. I think it might be better if I don't come by home first before I go. Folks, he's not going across the street. He's not taking a short plane ride across the country. He's going to be on a five-month boat trip to China. And then he's going to live and die there is every expectation he has. And he's writing, I think it might be better if I don't come home first. It would be really hard for both of us if I did that. I think he just unearthed one of the greatest obstacles to a lot of missions movements. Parents. <laughs> Lord, send missionaries, but it's just not mine. Yeah, send, them, send somebody's kids, but, but not my kids. because And if you send them, leave the grandkids home. I mean, you know, just somehow or another, let's do this. And so he writes this letter, and he says to his mom, Mom, pray for me. It's easy to talk of leaving all for Christ. But when it comes to the proof, it's only as we stand complete in him we can go through with it. God be with you. God bless you, my own dear mother. And give you to realize, listen to this, give you to realize the preciousness of Jesus. Seriously? I'm going to be gone. You will probably never see me again. And I'm praying that God will give you to realize the preciousness of Jesus. That you may wish for nothing but to know him, even in the fellowship of his sufferings. This man was in love with Jesus. And he had seen something of the beauty of Christ and gazed upon his glory. And like Paul, he says, I consider everything else as rubbish that I may know him. And the fellowship of his sufferings is not going to deter me because I have seen that Jesus is most precious to me. And so, yeah, missions, one core characteristic is that it is empowered from power on high. Secondly, it is fed by this deep, deep, profound 
affection and passion for the precious Jesus who is our Savior. See, we, we, we take that kind of language and, and kind of mock it a little bit in our days as sensationalistic, manipulative language. We don't, we don't use that kind of talk anymore. He wasn't just using that talk. He was experiencing the experience of the beauty of Christ. There's a third thing that we'll have time to look at. And that is, it's characterized by prevailing prayer. People prayed. The movements were preceded by prayer. When our concerns for the kingdom are the concerns of Christ instead of our own self-focused concerns, our prayer life is going to reflect a growing desire for all that brings delight to the heart of God. Because as we're praying and as we draw near to him, what happens is that his passions become our passions. We draw near, we get close enough to recognize that there's something in his heart that's not yet in our heart. And so we desire to have our heart transformed to be like his heart. And so what happens for us is to understand that passionate prayer is the, the language of our true desires. I did a study on prayer years ago, and there was a book by Gardner Spring where he talked about prayer being the language of our desires. In other words, prayer is the showcase. It's the the store window that reveals what's really precious to us, what we really care about. And so we can give all of our words, oh, I really love missions, or I really love Jesus, or I really love seeing people come to Christ, or I really love worship, or I really love whatever we say we love. And he's saying, well, if you do, it'll show up in your praying. You pray about what you care about. Everything else is just talk. Prayer is the language of desire, and so persistent prayer draws us near enough to recognize the longings of God's heart so that we begin to pray in line with what impacts the heart of God. The nations are on the heart of God. You know that. You know that the greatness of his plan is there. The passage we didn't read at the beginning from Isaiah 49 says, it's too small a thing for this whole plan of salvation to just be for Israel. There's, there's a greatness to God's mercy that extends to the nations. That's a part of the mystery of the gospel, that on God's heart is not just his people Israel coming to, to know him, but for all nations through them. The covenant made with Abraham right from the beginning, this is my plan. And so he says, this is how this fervor is demonstrated. Prevailing prayer will always light the fires of missionary fervor. It always will. When I was in college, a little undergraduate, sophomore, a summer before that sophomore year, a friend of mine called and says, David, uh, I've been working as the youth director at this little Moravian church over near, you know, the old Moravian you know, village and stuff. Some of you may have been there. And uh, I want you to be my replacement there. And I'm going, well, I have not a chance in this world. I said, and it's Moravian, it's not Mormons. Let's make sure that's clear. Okay, so it's like, you as a pastor in a Mormon church? Is that what he said? No, Moravian, Moravian people from Moravia and Bohemia in the part of Germany that was sort of the Bavarian area. And I, I learned some things about that church that I had not known before. It's not like that anymore, but back in 1722, a man named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. There's going to be a test afterwards. He has a, a laundry in, in Winston-Salem. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf saw that there was a persecution of the believers all around that part of Germany. And so he established sort of a safe haven, a place called Hernhut, uh, this place of the watch, God's watch. 
And he invited persecuted Christians to come there together. And they were coming from all around to keep from being persecuted by the, the powers of the government around. And pretty soon they started having conflict because they had different doctrines and different ideas of where they were coming from. And so he came and they established a basic baseline of biblical theology and truth that we're to love each other for Christ's sake. And in 1727, there was an outbreak of revival there. The Holy Spirit moved in power among the folks. And what began in 1727 was a prayer movement. They, they called it the intercessory hours. Every hour of every day, at least two of the unitas fratrum would gather together, the brothers, the United Brothers, to gather to pray. And so every hour they would meet for prayer. So isn't that nice? It went on for a hundred years. A hundred years of unbroken prayer. Now, reading church history, I don't see that anywhere else in church history. Is anybody else aware of something? I mean, you can tell me afterwards and say, no, it, it happened in my family. We did. Yeah. I, okay, good. I, I need to know that. But right now, the only place I know here, and during one 25-year block of this time, from 1727 to about 1830 or somewhere in that range, at one 25-year block, they sent out from this small little village, this little community, they sent out over 100 international missionaries. Where did that come from? Hmm, I think maybe it was prevailing prayer. You can't spend all that time in prayer and not have your passions align with the passions of God. Now, during one 10-year period of time, Providence, the church that you came from and I came from, had a 24-hour intercessory prayer ministry and it eventually kind of got calmed down because of you know all kinds of issues and people coming together and it was not safe to go on Glenwood Avenue after midnight and all that kind of stuff and so we we changed it around but there's still a prayer ministry going on there and you've had that prayer ministry and during one 10-year period of time Providence got the privilege of sending out over a hundred international missionaries during that one 10-year block you have had the privilege of seeing that happen through here my exhortation to you this morning is keep it up. Don't stop. Be a people of prevailing prayer because prevailing prayer always precedes great missions movements and sustains the ones that are currently going on. So our prayer is, oh God, do it again. That's the language of our desire. That's the showcase of our hearts. Well, out of time, got one fourth point, and it is they love the Bible. Okay, let's close. No, they did love the Bible. The people who had a passion for missions had a passion for truth. They loved God's word. And so God's greatest missionary, A.T. Pearson, who succeeded Spurgeon, Metropolitan Tabernacle, said this. He says, God's greatest missionary is not men. It's the book. It's the infallible book, the book that never grows old or weary, never needs a vacation. We might want to put never needs a furlough, never dies the book that goes everywhere. And if it only speaks to every man in his own tongue wherein he was born, it becomes the living and immortal missionary of God. Build people up in their most holy faith in the word of God. Trust the word to do its work. Paul talked about that many times. He said, preach the word in season and out of season. This is all scriptures inspired by God is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Study to show yourself approved. Pass on the, the legacy given to you. He says again and again, teach people the Bible. 
and teach them to love the Jesus of the Bible and teach them to pray diligently in the spirit of prayer and revivals and teach them that they must be empowered with spiritual power from on high. And then watch what I'll do. You will see a mighty missions movement again. And so we close with this. God is able. This is 2 Corinthians 9 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may abound for every good work. That seems like a good promise. So the question is, has the Lord called you to go? Some of you here have already been called, and you're already on track to go in the pipeline, getting ready. Others of you are still processing what God's saying to you. Today's a great weekend to make some kind of step in the right direction there. Is God calling you? Has the Lord touched you on maybe any one of these four areas where you need to kind of up your game and embrace it a little more seriously than you ever have? That picture of Hudson Taylor praying on the hillside one afternoon for hours, offering his soul to Christ, it convicts the daylights out of me. May we be that kind of people who are ready to go. And maybe the Lord's given you a little more personal push in the direction of what he wants you to do as a result of the Great Commission and these things that are foundational. But in all of this, God wants you to step up and not sit down until he has accomplished his work in you. Let's pray together.